the Bible reading the Bible reading this morning is from 1 John 5 verses 13 to 21 I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life this is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us and if we know that he hears us whatever we ask we know that we have what we have asked of him if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death you should pray and God will give them life I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death there is a sin that leads to death I'm not saying that you should pray for that all wrongdoing is sin and there is a sin that does not lead to death we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin the one who was born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true by being in his Son Jesus Christ he is the true God and eternal life dear children keep yourselves from idols thank you so Reich's preaching at Gympie this morning and next week and then I think they're having the 30th as a, a day off and then they'll join us in February and I caught up with the Jamaludens during the week and Dan and Rachel, they'll be going to church later in the day. So as we pray for our time in God's word, let's pray for them as well. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we look at this part of the Bible, we pray that you would speak to our hearts and encourage us to keep trusting in Jesus. And we think of Reich as he preaches this morning. We pray that he would be faithful as he teaches your word. And we think of Dan and Rachel as the kids as they go to church later today. And we pray that they would continue to serve you faithfully and that they too would be encouraged as your word is opened. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I first went to uni a little while ago now, um, I resisted the temptation or resisted the, I just didn't want to put it that way, join the main Christian group on campus. I think it came down to the fact that I'm a bit stubborn and a minister's kid and had my Christian friends and didn't think I needed it. I'd go along occasionally to the lunchtime Bible talks when I suited me, as when it suited me, mostly because I liked the way the guy that was preaching would be cynical about things that appealed to me but I didn't want to be part of the small groups the faculty groups um, or anything like that in second year I'd got talked into going along to mid-year camp and joined a faculty group um, and as someone coming in from outside into this group of Christians one of the things I remember noticing was the way that this group of people would pray when they prayed they'd go up on the end of their sentences all the time and it was weird um, I grew heaps over the next few years as a Christian at uni and I expect that by the end of that time I was probably going up at the end of my sentences as well but when you come into a group of Christians from outside you do notice things like that and I wonder if people are coming in to Kenmore from outside into a growth group or even into church I wonder what they think about the way that we pray but I'm more thinking more than just about whether you go up at the end of your sentences. I'm thinking, 
what do they see about the way that we pray for each other? Do we have a genuine concern for one another that shows in the way that we share our concerns and pray for each other? Are we focused on Jesus and on his kingdom and on people coming to know him? Or are we focused on our own kingdom and the things that worry us all the time? Do we share our lives together enough that we can pray in a meaningful way for each other? I know, like, as a church, we do encourage you to pray for each other. And around about this time each year, uh, we'll put together an update of the church photo directory. And in large, in large part, that's so that you'll get to know each other and, and know each other's names, know each other's faces. But also, we encourage you to pray through that directory, using it like a prayer book, praying for all the people that are part of your church. And we encourage the growth groups to do the same. But even with that discipline of praying for each other like that, does it actually result in real prayer and real intercession for each other in a meaningful, helpful way? These, these are all the kind of questions which the passage that Rian read for us should cause us to be thinking about. If you look at verse 16, it stirs up these sorts of questions. It tells us when we see our brother or sister in Christ sinning, we should pray for them. Do we pray for each other in our battle against sin like that? Do we know each other well enough to be able to? And now that I've drawn your attention to verse 16, no doubt you've done the right thing and you've read the rest of the verse and you're not listening to anything that I'm saying because you're actually looking at that thinking, what's the sin that doesn't lead to death? And down in verse 17, what's the sin that does lead to death? Yep. Like last week, we've managed to pick part of 1 John that has a tricky bit to it. And so, like last week, um, let's do the similar thing to what we did last week. I mean, it's my job. We're in a Presbyterian church. I'm, my role is the, the, the teaching elder. It's my job to teach the, this, to teach the Bible to you, including this tricky part. But I'm hoping that I can do it in a way that encourages all of us to read it for ourselves and to weigh it up for ourselves and to get better at reading the Bible for ourselves. So when we come to a tricky part of the Bible, like verses 16 and 17, don't think about what you're having for lunch or anything like that. Keep working a little bit harder and try to understand it. Last week, we, I said when we come to a tricky part of the Bible, one way to tackle it is to, to note the question, note the tricky bit, and then see if we can understand the rest of the passage without it, and then thirdly, put it back in and see if it fits. If it doesn't fit, well, we haven't understood the passage. If it does fit, well, we've come some way. And that's what we did last week. I know last week there's still unfinished questions, but we've narrowed down where our questions are. And maybe over time, uh, we'll narrow it down further until Jesus returns, and then everything will be made clear. So this morning, let's try to do the same thing again. Let's acknowledge that verses 16 and 17 are tricky. So then let's put them to one side and work at understanding the rest of the passage, and then come back to verses 16 and 17 and see if it all fits together. When you look at it like that, the rest of the passage I don't think is too tricky. This is a letter that's written to reassure Christians, reassure people who are trusting in Jesus to say you have eternal life when you put your trust in Jesus. And so have a look at verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. I think there John's talking about this whole letter that he's written. He's writing to Christians saying you believe in the Son of God so you have eternal life. He's writing to reassure them to build their confidence that they have eternal life in Jesus so that they know that. 
Um, 1 John, yeah, it's a very short letter tucked at the back of the Old Testament, uh, New Testament rather, and it's easy to disregard it, but when you do come through and try to read it, the next thing that throws you is it feels like there's just no structure to it. It jumps around all over the place. It's like it's written in almost sort of something that would appeal to a, a Bachelor of Arts student or a literature student or someone like that, not, not a simple engineer like myself. 1 John may not be the most accessible book in the New Testament, but let's remember verse 13. It's written to encourage us. So if you find the structure difficult, don't be put off, keep reading. Once you appreciate that it's written to encourage you and keep reading, it does start to unravel and fall into place. So 1 John 1 opens like this. It goes in chapter 1, verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. You kind of read it, you think, I wish you'd speak more plain English. But as you look at, look at it and think about it, it is encouraging. John's reminding Christians that we have the truth, and with the truth you have life. Why is John writing to reassure Christians? I put, pointed this out last week and the week before. I think because there's false teachers. When you look at chapter 2, verse 18 and 19, people who are anti-Jesus leading others astray, people who profess to be Christian even, but they're actually anti-Jesus. And so confronted by those insiders who are teaching error, John's reassuring them, trust in Jesus, trust in the truth, and you have life. And so that's what 5 verse 13 is saying. And then this short letter, although the commentators you know, debate over what sort of structure there is, I reckon as you read through from chapter 1 verse 1 through to the end of the, the kind of the poem at chapter 2 verse 14, by then, John's throwing in all the things he's going to talk about, and then I think he cycles it around, looking at different angles of these same topics, these same themes. And I think the main themes are love, love for your brothers and sisters in Christ, sin and righteousness and the battle with sin, the struggle to be obedient, um, and just belief, trust, knowing that you have the truth. And those themes, they just move around and, and cycle around and through. And along the way, John gives you these tests of life. Are you trusting in Jesus? Well, tick the box. You're a Christian. Are you battling against sin? Well, yes, you have eternal life. It's at work in you. Are you loving your brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, you know you're alive. With that kind of rough overview of 1 John, it helps you appreciate verse 13. I write these things to, know, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Um, both knowing and the idea of eternal life keep flipping around as you keep reading through the rest of the chapter. Um, if you jump from verse 13 over the tricky bits, 16 and 17, and look at verse 18 to 20, when you look at verses 18 and 20, you'll see that it's all about what we know. The passage started in verse 13 by saying, we know we have eternal life. And this idea of what you know keeps trickling through. Verse 18 says, we know, any, um, we know anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God, Jesus, keeps him safe. Um, that theme of battling against sin, it's already been in 1 John. I've said that. Here it is again, cycling around. The fact that you battle against sin is a sure sign that God is at work in you. Christ is at work in you. Verse 19 says, we know that we're children of God. And as children of God, we'll stand out from the world. We'll be different from the world. Unlike the false teachers back in chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, and in chapter 4, we won't be of the world. 
will stand out as different. Verse 20, still talking about what we know, says, We know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And if you're in him who is true, even Jesus Christ, he is the true God and you have eternal life. It's this reassurance, this encouragement that what you know and the fact that you have eternal life. And then you'll see this symmetry to the passage. We're back at the reassurance of eternal life in verse 20 that you started with in verse 13. Come back to verse 13 again and, and work down through again. So John's writing to Christians who, so that they know that we have eternal life. And then verses 14 and 15, we're reassured that God hears our prayers. So verse 14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. It's saying you can pray with confidence. God hears you and he will answer your prayer. Um, it's setting us up for the tricky bit in verse 16 that we'll come to. There's this confidence we have to intercede for each other in Christ in verse 16. And that confidence flows from verses 14 and 15, that God hears our prayers. Um, it's a confidence that we are heard um, and that is being heard by God. It's one of these features of having eternal life. It's part of what it means to have eternal life. We belong to God. We're his children. He hears us. Verse 13, we have that eternal life. So it's time to put the tricky verses back in. We can pray to God with confidence, knowing that he hears us. What are we to pray about? Look at verse 16. It's not your ordinary kind of growth group prayer. It's a bit deeper than that, isn't it? If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death. So if you see your brother or sister in Christ sinning, you should pray for them. You should intercede for them. Pray on their behalf. I mean, it's simple for us to think about when we sin, we pray to God, we confess our sin, we ask for forgiveness. This is saying, though, pray for your brother or sister in Christ when they sin. Intercede for them. And look at the reassurance in verse 16. If anyone sees his brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, they should pray for them and God will give them life. There's this confidence that God will restore their brother or sister in Christ when you pray for them. It's huge. Remember, we've got our context. This is a letter written to reassure Christians, reassure people who in verse 13 already have eternal life. Verses 14 and 15, you have confidence to pray to God, confidence to pray for God concerning the sin of your brother or sister in Christ because we know that God will hear our prayer and restore them. Um, we talked about this in Bible study some years back. And we're looking at verse 15, and if we know that we, he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked him for. It sounds like he could ask God for whatever, a new piano, whatever, who cares? But when you read it in the context... He's writing to Christians, reassuring them, warning them not to slip away. I think what's on the forefront of his mind is praying for each other that you'll hold firm in your trust in Jesus and keep living for him. And in verse 16, it's saying, when you see your brother or sister stumble, pray for them and God will restore them. There's an encouragement there. There's a huge confidence there. Can you feel that the kind of the, the way the context helps you understand verse 16 so far? Um, We've sort of stepped around the most tricky bit, I think, 
So back to verse 16. If you see another, uh, any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying you should pray about that. The second half of verse 16, well, that has the potential to keep you talking until this time next week. But I'm hoping that as you get a feel for 1 John as a whole, you, you can kind of narrow down what it's talking about. And I'm hoping that by working through verses 13 to 50, 15 first, verse 16 should fit in and make sense. Um, in year 12, I took uh, the most basic English on offer. I think it was partly to avoid Shakespeare. I think it was partly because I couldn't spell. But that makes me want to put this into nice, simple, plain language because it feels a little bit complicated. If I try to put it in plain, simple language, I think it goes something like this. If you see your fellow Christian sinning, pray for them because you know they have eternal life. You know God is at work in them. Pray for them because you know God will hear your prayer. There's, there's sin that we commit that God forgives. Pray with confidence that he will forgive them. But I'm not talking about the sin that leads to death. I'm not saying you could pray in this, with the same confidence about that. That's kind of the gist, isn't it? And we're left wondering, so what is that sin that leads to death? What is the sin that leads to death? And has it been mentioned before in 1 John, perhaps? I wonder whether back in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 2, these false teachers back there who've gone out from among the Christians who are anti-Jesus, surely that's the kind of sin that, or unbelief that leads to death, isn't it? Rejecting the gospel. And we know all that. And so we pray for our brother or sister in Christ when we see them sin, knowing that God will stop them going that far. God will restore them. We can have confidence. But John's saying don't pray with the same confidence for those who are anti-Jesus, who are of the world, who have this kind of hard-hearted rejection of the truth. You can't have that kind of confidence when you pray. Um, I trust that I'm doing justice to the passage when I put it like that, when I say that the sin that leads to death is ongoing, hard-hearted, Rejection of the Lord Jesus. The only way we can be forgiven. And here's John's not saying we should pray with confidence regarding that. And then if you step beyond the passage, should we pray for non-Christians? I want to say yes, we should. We ought to plead with God for their salvation. We should beg with God to soften their hearts and cause them to come to know Jesus. To shine the, the light of life into their dark hearts as well. But with 1 John 5 in mind, as you pray for your non-Christian friend, you don't pray with the same confidence as when you pray for your Christian friend, someone who's blatantly living for Jesus and yet have sinned. I think that's the shape of it. I think it's the direction the passage is going. Because remember, this is a letter written to reassure Christians, to give them confidence that through belief in Jesus and his atoning death in our place, we have eternal life, despite the fact that we will stumble, we will fall despite the fact that we will battle sin and we know, we still know that in Jesus we have eternal life and so we pray for each other, knowing that God will work. Um, and then you get to the last verse in the passage, 5 verse 21, it just says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. John's doing his thing of kind of being un unexpected there, I think. Um, he ends his letter by leaving a warning 
ringing in our ears. In Jesus, you have eternal life. You have the confidence of forgiveness. You have the confidence to approach the God of the universe. Don't settle for anything less, any idols. Why would you allow yourself to listen to the false teachers who speak from the worldly point of view instead of pointing you to Jesus, the one true God? So as you look across the passage as a whole, although verse 16 may feel to us like a tricky bit in the passage, it's also the main part of this passage, isn't it? John's telling us to pray for each other, to really pray for each other. Um, I've lived for a few years now, um, been around Christian churches for, or worked in Christian churches for 20 years or so. I've seen how complicated our lives can get. I've seen what a mess we can make when we make poor decisions, when we make mistakes. I've seen the kind of struggles that we go through, all the, the mess we can make of our life. As people who are trying to live for Jesus, verse 16 is saying pray for each other. Pray that in all that mess of our lives that God would keep working in us, keep restoring us. And as you pray that kind of prayer for your fellow Christian, you can pray with confidence, knowing that that's part of God's plan. That's what he wants to do. And God hears your prayer. Our confidence, so verse 16, our confidence to intercede for our fellow Christians, it comes from our confidence in verses 14 and 15 that God hears our prayers and our confidence that we have eternal life when we put our trust in Jesus in verse 13. So as a group of people have done that, we can pray with confidence that God will continue to work in us. Um, I realise this week and last week, the passages, they've had some tricky bits in them and there's stuff that you'd be keen to keep talking about. Keep doing that. Keep bouncing it off each other. Keep working it, trying to understand it for yourself. I reckon when you've worked out your understanding and what makes sense, then you'll hang on to it a lot tighter than if you just listen to what someone tells you from the front. So keep struggling with those tricky bits. Um, but for now, how about I pray for us? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus. Thank you for the sure forgiveness and the eternal life that we have as we put our trust in Jesus. Thank you for your amazing grace, your incredible mercy and kindness. Thank you that you overlook our sin because of Jesus' death in our place. And Father, we pray for each one of us here as we see each other stumble as Christians. Lord, please help us to be quick to pray for one another, to pray that you would restore us. Lord, we pray for those of us who have things we need to work through with others around church. Please help us to do that in a loving and godly way that draws each other to be living for you. And Father, we do pray for um, those that don't know you, non-Christian friends and family. Father, we pray that in your kindness that you would be at work in them and change them. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.